This recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. I enjoy that moment of quiet to reflect. I gave a friend a tape last week. <clears throat> it's a tape of uh, an album by Terry Allen, who is a high school classmate of Hank Still, which is one of his great claims to fame. Usually he's introduced that way, Terry Allen, artist, singer, and high school classmate of Hank Still. <laughs> the name of the album uh, is Lubbock on Everything, and uh, Terry Allen is kind of a, a cult hero. Very few of us know about him. Uh, my best guess is because of his music, uh, it'll remain that way. <laughs> the lead song on the first side of the album is entitled The Great Joe Bob is Dead, which is a story of a West Texas high school football player who uh, fell in love with the waitress down at the Heidi Ho and uh, wound up being obscene in front of the cum laude, cum laude daughter of the dean and was kicked off the football team. He gave up prayer in Grody's hair. <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> My favorite title on the album is on the second side, and the name of that song is My Ego Ain't My Amigo Anymore. <laughs> it's an extremely profound thought. It is, a, it is uh, in thinking uh, the second half of life issue, and that is, are you going to continue to allow uh, that small part of the personality which seeks to dominate and control the entire personality, are you going to let it continue to dictate where the meaning is? Now, if you remember, the ego is the great I am for the human being, which is the center of consciousness, and the ego is all that about one that one is able to tolerate consciously. And if you can't tolerate things about yourself consciously, then you repress them or you project them. And we're pretty good at doing either of those, repressing things about ourselves that we just can't own or understand or project them onto somebody else. The real title of my talk today is not My Ego Ain't My Amigo Anymore. That's the point of the lecture. The title of the talk is It Hurts So Good. Now, this is one of the... Uh, that's a punchline for about 20 jokes I heard growing up. <laughs> None of which I can tell this morning, but the, the, <laughs> the idea of the ego is that the ego, the center of consciousness, which is the controlling, surviving factor of consciousness from childhood birth, the ego will not tolerate pain. 
unless uh, it knows nothing else and then we have a very pathological situation called masochism where the ego can't exist without pain. Now, I just spent the weekend with my father and I said last week that I don't do Father's Day and Mother's Day talks uh, on any special day. I do them all the time. Uh, so this is not one of those Father's Day talks except to say that my most recent experience with it hurts so good was being with my father. Um, you know, I've made this uh, disclaimer before with you all here. Uh, is it just is it hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> well, I don't know how to rescue us from this, except I'll be as brief as possible. <laughs> I give you all permission to take off uh, whatever seems appropriate. <laughs> <clears throat> On uh, Friday of this week, uh, my two boys and I uh, drove up on Thursday, actually, to be with my father for Father's Day. Drove back last night. Uh, on Friday, my father and I got up, uh, and uh, about 10 o'clock, both my boys were still in bed. Uh, one of the things that my father said to me when I was growing up uh, was that only uh, white trash would lie in bed after 9 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> he had failed to read that book on adolescent physiology. And the dramatic need for sleep found in the adolescent male. Um, my guess is that, that uh, my boys could sleep uh, three days in a row. The amazing thing about him, though, is that, uh, particularly my 16-year-old, is that uh, he has great ability that uh, when he gets up, uh, we can't tell the difference. <laughs> The same sounds emanate from him when you're shaking him to getting up as when you're asking him about where he's going or what time he's, com <laughs> what time he's coming in. You remember I said that my 16-year-old son has come out of the Socratic Eastern tradition uh, where, uh, where he responds to me by questions, uh, where are you going, where do you think I'm going? <laughs> I consider that to be a, uh, an educational dialogue between father and son. <laughs> what time are you going to be in? Well, when do you think I'll be in? See how he draws me out? <laughs> my father and I got up at 10 o'clock. <clears throat> we were up much earlier, but at 10 o'clock boys, my boys were still asleep and we decided to take a long walk, which we did. And we came back about noon and uh, uh, the boys were, were getting up and uh, <laughs> craving sugar. 
Well, my father and I did an unusual thing. We went to the backyard and sat on the patio and we talked. After a two-hour walk, uh, sitting on the patio in the hot sun, my father said, could I indulge you uh, in one of the great benefits of retirement? My father's 77, been retired for almost 12 years now. And I said, of course, what is that? And he said, how about a cold beer at noonday? <laughs> I ordinarily don't have a cold beer at noon, uh, but uh, that was nice to do with my father. I noticed over uh, in the bed something that I hadn't seen before at their home, and that was this glorious uh, bush with great full uh, so heavily weighted that the stems were uh, bending, uh, trying to bear the weight of hydrangeas. Uh, they were the kind of blue-purple hydrangeas. Uh, it startled me because when I was growing up, my grandmother had those uh, outside her house, and they're one of the earliest pictures of me uh, is sitting in front of a hydrangea bush. When I say one of the earliest pictures, I guess um, it's one of the few pictures I was a second child. <laughs> the excuse, of course, was it was during the war and we couldn't get film. You remember that? <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of pictures of my brother and there are four of me. <clears throat> One of which was sitting in front of this hydrangea bush in front of my grandmother's. and. And it's a family story that I've written about elsewhere, and that is that my second son, Jarrett, saw the picture of me sitting in front of the hydrangea bush, and it was in black and white, and he said, gosh, in the old days, was everything black and white? I've seen that as a very profound statement. I asked my father about the bush, and he said, well, that was one of the last uh, things that I remember your mother telling me was, uh, that uh, that hydrangea bush was important to her. It had been given to her while she was in the hospital. Uh, she planted it outside because she loved hydrangea bushes and she wanted to be sure that dad would water that and was always reminding him of such and he has done so and it has blossomed, it has bloomed. Which of course brought my mother uh, to our consciousness. As most of you know, my mother died a couple of years ago. And my father, amidst the kind of refreshing uh, walk, uh, the cleansing of uh, two hours of walking and perspiration, uh, and then the, uh, the spiritual enlightenment of uh, the alcohol within the beer, my father began to talk about my mother. And uh, he said, I'll never forget the first time I saw your mother. And I knew I was in for one of those um, most glorious nostalgic moments, and you know the word nostalgia means pain for the past. And I knew that we were moving into what was going to be a very meaningful, though very painful, discussion. Uh, prepared for that and knowing that that's uh, what I enjoy most, uh, he went on. He said, you know, I had a bread route and uh, used to deliver to the small towns around Fayetteville, Arkansas. I used to go to Prairie Grove and Cane Hill. He said there was a little store down in Greasy Valley that I used to have to go take care of. Uh, over on the Oklahoma side to Westville, and one of the towns was Lincoln, Arkansas, which is near Fayetteville. 
and he said that there was a little store there run by two old maid sisters, and the name of the store was Miller and Miller, and that they had primarily, they sold patterns. That's an interesting anachronistic thought. Uh, patterns. I remember my mother used to go and buy patterns uh, to make things on the sewing machine. I don't know the last time I saw a pattern somewhere. They sold primarily patterns, he said. And uh, he went into the store one day because they also kept a little bread and milk. I guess it was the early convenience store. And he said when he went in, he saw my mother, and he said, it was like seeing a woman out of context. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, here's this small, unsophisticated town, and here stood this tall, uh, extremely beautiful, very sophisticated woman. He said, I was struck most particularly by the fact that she had on a white linen dress with brown and white spectator shoes. He said, it was a very fashionably dressed woman for this small town in Arkansas. And she was there picking out a pattern. <clears throat> My mother always made all of her own clothes, as they say. And so he asked Miss Miller uh, who this was, and he said, that's Ruth Hanks. He said, you might know who she is. She's Pittman Hanks' sister. Uh, he did know my Uncle Pitt. Uncle Pitt was a friend of his <clears throat> that he had met at the university. And so he said, yes, that's Pittman's sister. He, of course, was talking about my mother. So uh, the next time he was through Lincoln, he asked uh, how he could find that tall, sophisticated-looking woman. And he was told by Miss Miller where she lived. He talked about going home and, and calling her, and she had to go to the neighbor's phone because they didn't have one of their own, and asking for a date. <clears throat> and uh, he said, you probably don't know me, but I know your brother Pitt. And she said, if you really want a date with me, uh, you won't tell me that. <laughs> Sometime when we have more time, I will tell you about my Uncle Pitt. <laughs> so my father would describe going for the first date, and he said he turned off the highway into Lincoln, and I've been to Lincoln innumerable times in my youth. Uh, that's where my grandmother, of course, lived and where we used to go in the summers. Uh, we were of the generation that didn't have a summer home and couldn't afford to go uh, anywhere else, so we always went to family uh, during the summer. Uh, the only exception to that was one year my father uh, and my brother and mother <coughs> and our dog Fuzzy uh, went to Carlsbad Cavern uh, from Drumright, Oklahoma in an unconditioned, air-conditioned car. Uh, I was over 30 before I realized what GD dog meant. <laughs> so my father always referred to our dog. 
So I knew the very scene that my father described, I knew because I'd been to Lincoln uh, through my youth. Uh, you turned off the highway and on the, uh, in the middle of town was a square. And people would come to town in those days on Saturday. And this was a Saturday night and folks had come to town. And, and he saw in the square my Uncle Otis, uh, who was married to my mother's sister, Ella. He also saw my mother's cousin, Lon, and uh, my Uncle Pitt. And he asked directions on how to get to the house. And so that was very easy to find. It was just a couple of blocks away. And when he drove up the dirt road, he saw my mother uh, sitting on the front porch. Uh, this is my father's description as, as of Friday. Sitting on the front porch in a wicker rocker, rocking back and forth, sitting with her mother. He said it was the most tranquil scene I'd ever seen. And I knew the moment I drove up that I had driven into my future. That was nice. Well, um, that was a very painful story for me in a, in a nice way. It hurt so good. Now, my ego is a part of me that gets me in trouble because my ego uh, doesn't want to allow anything into my system that threatens its place. And so my ego is threatened by the fact that folks die. And my ego wants to withdraw from anything that's intimate or close because my ego knows that there will be pain there. I'm old enough to know that I can't have it both ways. That either uh, if we have relationships we will be hurt or we can become rocks and islands and not be hurt. But we can't have the intimacy and not the pain. My ego resists that kind of intimacy either individually or corporately. They will say uh, that it's self-serving or what, what business does one have telling such stories in public? More importantly, though, in my own relationships with individuals, the inability to get close for the fear of pain. I taught for a long time that there is risk in relationships. There's a risk that you will be hurt. I'm older now. There is no risk involved in any relationship. You will be hurt. Hurt is just another name for love. Now, my ego doesn't want to live with that reality, and so my ego continues to want to repress or project anything that's painful or anything that's inappropriate or anything that's threatening. But I am old enough now to realize that there are, is another voice within me that is much more substantial. It's a voice that has been with me for a long time that I've heard elsewhere and beginning to hear in myself now, and that is that, that it is that there is a bigger world, that I belong to something beyond history, I belong to something beyond my primary family, I belong to something greater even than the universe. 
Now that voice is very dim sometimes in the midst of crisis or tragedy or pain or nostalgia or decision making. But my ego is not my amigo anymore. I hope most of you saw the play Equus or maybe the movie in which we have the story of this adolescent who begins to worship horses. He makes the object of his worship horses and in a, uh, a moment uh, he betrays the gods uh, by being involved with a young woman in which the horses watch and he gouges the eyes out of the horses uh, because of what they've seen, his sin, his imperfection, his, his inappropriateness. And he gouges the eyes of the horses and the horse <clears throat> and the young man is brought to a psychiatrist uh, and the psychiatrist discovers uh, that in order to take the boy's pain away, he'll have to do a spiritual lobotomy and take his passion away. Alan Jones writes about that very pro profoundly in his book, Journey uh, into Christ. Dr. Dysart is unnerved. He hesitates to take away the boy's pain and tries to explain his hesitation to a friend. His dilemma is this. Pain is a peculiar human possession, not the pain arbitrarily inflicted on us by others but the pain which inevitably comes to us on our pilgrimage. That kind of pain is unique to the individual. To take away the boy's pain would be to take away his passion. This boy had felt intensely. The boy had at least galloped. Christianity, at its most basic level, integrates the pain as a part of the passion. Uh, the garden is a rose garden, but it's full of thorns, a crown of thorns. Christianity does not promise us a, a rose garden unless you consider the Garden of Gethsemane a rose garden full of thorns. The reality for us human beings, and it's time that we've had ego recognition of that consciousness, that if you want to be a pilgrim, pain is a part of the process. Remove the pain, you remove the passion. So much of life today is geared toward removing the pain. And that's what our egocentric, self-indulged, uh, society wants is people who will remove the pain and guarantee you uh, something that will keep you from hurting. It is the nature of alcohol and drugs and all kinds of other things that we use to assuage the pain. If your ego avoids intimacy or risk-taking or movement or pilgrimage for the fear of the pain, then your ego ain't your amigo anymore. If you're afraid to take a risk with a relationship because you're afraid you'll be hurt, or a risk with a new lifestyle or a new form of behavior or letting your children go, 
because of the fear of the pain, then there will be no passion. We can't have it either way. We have to have it both ways. The pain and the passion come together. We refer to Jesus' action upon the cross as the passion. It is a passionate act and the painful act out of which new life always comes. And there is no Easter without Good Friday. Uh, there is no wonderful, loving story of a singular man and a singular woman who came together to make another generation without the pain, without the nostalgic hurting uh, in the bone marrow of one's own psyche about the loss of love. Then the realization that my mother is dead and that my father will die and so will I. And that asleep in another room are two more members of another generation. Either it was and is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. It is absurd. We have to face the pain of that. Or we have to face the pain of the reality that somehow it's a part of the process. And to begin to see pain not as an enemy, but maybe even as an amigo. Pain is what informs us that we're alive. The dead feel no pain. If you're in pain, then you're alive. And where the pain is, there is a possibility for passion. Where the passion is, is where the new life comes. And so rather than being immobilized for fear of the pain, or rather than being masochistic and living only for the pain, realize that it's part of the process. And I can't decide on the basis of hearing my father tell the story of when he first met my mother as to whether that's a story of passion. It is. A story of pain. It is. But it's not a story of death. It's a story of life. That's the Christian story. It's not a story of death. It's a story of life. But in the life-giving story, we recognize that death is part of the process. Psychological, spiritual, and physical. Those who are afraid of the pain just die earlier. Amen. Oh,